In every cultural moment, there are parts of the Bible that are offensive. And some of the offensive parts of the Bible are offensive in particular for a particular cultural moment. And some parts of the Bible are offensive no matter what kind of cultural moment that you're in. And today, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, we're hitting the Mark 10. And in Mark 10, we hit a couple different offensive passages all in one. And here's the thing. The passages we're going to cover today were just as offensive when Jesus said them 2,000 years ago as they are today for some of the same reasons and some new ones. And so you came on a great week. So so brace yourself and flip, if you dare, uh, to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to dive in right at the beginning and just kind of work through this section, uh, and we're going to skip around a a little bit. Uh, in, In Mark 10, starting in verse 1, it says this, he, that's Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And then crowds converged on him again, which we've seen a lot in Mark, and as was his custom, he taught them. And so some of the Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now we're told by Mark here that the purpose of this question was a test or better yet, a a trap. These religious leaders, what they wanted to do is they wanted to discredit Jesus. And maybe uh, there's a whole bunch of ways in which they could do that. And the the text doesn't tell us exactly how they were planning on doing that. But we can kind of guess on some of these. The first is maybe they could get Jesus to contradict the Bible. Maybe they could get him to say something that was different than what Mosaic said in the scriptures. And then they'll have a way to trap him there. Uh, And if they couldn't get him to contradict the Bible, they could maybe at least get him to pick a team. Because what was happening is there was this big debate around divorce happening in the first century uh, within the Jewish tradition because there were a couple different rabbis teaching different things. Rabbi Shammai was teaching that someone could divorce their wife, a man could divorce his wife, only if she committed adultery. And then there was this other rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, and he said, uh, you could pretty much divorce your wife for anything, like, like you know, snoring, wearing Crocs, anything offensive, right? So any reason at all. And so if they, if they couldn't get Jesus to contradict scripture, maybe they could get him to pick a team, right? And decide to jump into one or the other. And another option is, if you may remember that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, got into some trouble by speaking out against Herod's uh, marriage because he had what John the Baptist declared to be an unbiblical marriage. And so maybe they could get Jesus in trouble with Herod. So we don't know exactly what the trap was. We just know that they had set kind of a little bit of a trap door under Jesus. Now, many of you have probably faced a similar thing. I have. Uh, maybe when you've talked to someone who, uh, and they find out that you're a Christian, um, and for me, when they find out that I'm a pastor, maybe they'll ask you a trapdoor question. Now, in my experience, most people don't ask trapdoor questions because they're trying to trap me. They don't even realize it's a trapdoor question, but a lot of times people ask me a question that they already know what they believe, and they're just trying to figure out if I'm on their team or not. And so that's kind of how they ask their question. So here's how Jesus answers this particular question that is asked of him. Verse three, he replied to them, what did Moses command you? 
Now, by the way, this is what Jesus is, one of his favorite chess moves is someone asks him a question, he responds with a question. And the question that Jesus is asking back is basically he's saying, what does the Bible say? That's essentially what he, he's saying to them. And so rather than taking a position with one of the rabbis or saying, you know, I'm on team John the Baptist against Herod instead of doing any of that, he just, he just says, well, what, what does the Bible say? And in verse four, it says, uh, they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Well, yeah, kind of. See, what they just said right there is, is like a summary of the passage that was the big debate in the first century. So you can look this up when you get home. There's this passage in Deuteronomy 24, it's verses one through four, which is essentially a passage that uh, protects a divorced woman in their context from the accusation of adultery by saying that the man who divorced her had to put it into paper um, that they were no longer legitimately married. Now, why why was that such a big deal? Well, the reason was uh, that adultery was one of those sins that was punishable by death under the law of Moses for both parties. It was like, that big of a deal. And both parties uh, were uh, in a, an adulterous situation were to be put to death. It was that big of a sin. And so by the time of Jesus, the death penalty part wasn't really being practiced by anybody in Judaism. And so they were still now beginning to debate, like when could somebody get a divorce, right? And, and so there was this huge debate. And so that they're over arching summary of, well, Jesus, Moses permitted this, right? He permitted us to write divorce papers. This is a, a little bit of a slick summary. And so how's Jesus going to respond to that? Well, his answer was offensive. <laughs> his answer was offensive to them, and his answer is offensive to us for the same and some different reasons. So let's just acknowledge that out front, and let's go after it. Here it is. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And and when they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him more about the matter. In other words, they're like, okay, okay, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. (laughs) All right, there's a lot in there, isn't there? So let's just lay out Jesus's plainly articulated statements one at a time and work our way through them, okay? He starts with this. He starts with, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, this particular line right here was not offensive in the time of Christ. In fact, this line right here wasn't offensive until very, very recently in our cultural moment. And in our cultural moment that we're in right now, this is, in some ways, one of the most offensive things that you can say. And when we echo Jesus' words and we say that maleness and femaleness are rooted in biological sex, when we say that there are, uh, those two sexes are not interchangeable, that they were part of God's plan for the world, well, when you say things like that in our cultural moment today, you're called a lot of nasty names. And that viewpoint right there is considered by many in our culture right now to be an immoral viewpoint. And so the trapdoor questions that I'm often asked today are around this issue. People I've met, people I've never met, 
And, and people asking the questions, are, 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 they're not trying to set a trap for me. They just want to know, do you believe this thing? Because if you believe what Jesus lays out right here, then that means that they're not going to listen about anything else because of how important that issue has become in our culture. And Jesus continues his message, and it gets even more difficult to accept. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. When Jesus says, for this reason, what he's saying is, I'm building a logical case for you one step at a time. Because God has created two different types of people in his image, there is something sacred when these two necessarily different types of people come together in marriage that happens. There's something that happens when a husband and a wife come together. They are, he says, no longer two. Now, even that phrase is bonkers in our culture today, right? We're told by so many people, like, like, here, here's the deal. Uh, no other person defines you. They can't tell you who you are. Uh, they don't define you. You don't belong to another. But in Christian marriage, what we declare is that two are now one entity permanently. They are no longer two, Jesus says. This is one of the most beautiful portraits in all of the Bible that is given to us. When the fullness of our maleness and our femaleness come together as one, we show the world the unity of the church and Jesus, and we reflect the image of God in a unique way. And that phrase, one flesh, that's important too, because there is a consistent biblical picture that sexual fidelity, sexual activity of any sort belongs exclusively in the context of that one relationship that Jesus described. And that means that if you're single, your sexual expression doesn't belong to you. It belongs to someone that you may one day marry. Whether you got, get married or not is, is, is not the issue. Your sexuality belongs to that person. If you are married, your sexuality doesn't belong to you. It belongs to that, other, that person that you are married to, you are united to, that you are one in now for the rest of your life. And that's why Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, we've all heard that. <laughs> We've heard at weddings, but do we take it as a cute aspirational statement or as how things are meant to be? Do we build an escape clause into our marriage that says, yeah, but if she wears Crocs, right? And I know that sounds petty. I'm not trying to be petty. But we live in a culture right now, uh, in, in, in Michigan, we have something called no-fault divorce, which means I can divorce my wife if she wears Crocs if I want to. She could divorce me for snoring. We, we, this, there is no fault divorce says you have, you can leave that marriage at any time. And I, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic and exaggerating for a point. Jesus says, let no one separate them. Jesus is so strong about this. He, he's not even talking about Moses' reasons or this rabbi's reasons or that rabbi's reasons. He says, therefore, let no one separate now, in the parallel account in Matthew, he does add that unless there is uh, the case of unfaithfulness, unless one of the parties commits adultery, unless that does happen, right? And then Jesus says to his disciples, yeah, and, and if there wasn't unfaithfulness there, then if they get remarried, that's when adultery happens. Now, I do want to stop for a second because I do want to add a really important caveat. This teaching is not 
justification to trap anyone in a marriage where there's abuse of any sort. Physical, mental, sexual, any of that. In fact, I think it's clearly addressed in the very first thing Jesus said. Do you remember what he said? He wrote, that's Moses, this command for you because of your hardness of hearts. So hold on to that for a second. Look at that. Moses allowed divorce because people refuse to accept God's view of marriage when two become one. When husbands lay down their lives for their wives, when their wives respect their husbands, Moses allowed divorce because instead of that, their hearts were hard. And I, I know this sounds super indelicate. And I know some of you are squirming in your seats right now. But every single divorce I have ever come across has hardness of heart at the center of one or both of the parties. It's just there. A hardness of heart toward one another. A hardness of heart toward God. Something that turns into sin that breaks apart this oneness that, that God had orchestrated to be together. Now, I know this is intense. I know this is potentially very personal. We're just kind of getting started because now we're gonna jump to what seems like a completely different topic. If you have your Bibles, you can zoom down to verse 17, skip down five verses. It says this, it says, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when this guy runs up to Jesus and asks this question, he's asking the question behind the question for so many of us, because all of us, we are, whether we realize it or not, we are searching for life. This is ultimately the driver in most areas of our life. Listen to the wisest person that's ever lived, Solomon, and this is what he said about this. He said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work that God has done from beginning to end. There's a whole lot in there we don't have time for, but here's the point. God has placed inside of you eternity. Eternity sits inside of your heart. And that means that God has taken something, a longing for something that is greater than we can get here on this earth, a greater than we can get in the universe that transcends space and time. And he has placed that at the center of our being. And don't forget that a good way to think about our hearts from a biblical perspective is not just our emotions, but the decision-making engine of our life. It's, it's our intellect, it's our, it's our psychology, it's our experience, it's our personality, all we're wired together to this thing that drives our will and determines what we're going to do. That's our heart. And Solomon says, your heart, the thing that's making all these decisions in your life, it is searching for and longing for and grasping for eternity. That's why you so desperately want meaning and value and significance. No wonder our world tells us to follow our hearts. But it's more fair to say you have no option but to follow your heart. <laughs> it's what you do. It's the decision-making engine of your life. So will you make a decision, whether it's a good decision or a bad decision, one that's going to bring you life or one that's going to bring you death, you are following your heart. And sometimes your heart is really, really stupid. I have a friend who once said, don't follow your heart because it's an emotional idiot. <laughs> like, right? But why does that stupid happen? Because we're desperate. You know, whether you realize it or not, you're making decisions every day trying to find significance. And most of the conversations I have with people about 
marriage and divorce and sex and gender are actually about life. We're all searching for life. And we think we gotta find it somewhere. Maybe it's in here. Maybe I can search inside and find something in my identity, something that will give me life in here. Or maybe it's out there. It's, it's with this person or that person. Or, or we're searching, but we're just desperately trying to find this. And nothing ever fits. It's trying to like, find an, a Tetris piece that's the size of eternity that we can just slide into our soul to finally make everything work. So let's go back to our guy. He says to Jesus, good teacher, what's my, what must I do to I- inherit eternal life? And he's not trying to create a trap like the other guys were. He just really wants to know. And Jesus knows he's not trying to, to create a trap. So Jesus zeroes in on why, what he's really asking. Watch this. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now that may sound like sarcasm or annoyance, but Jesus is going somewhere. Watch this. He says to the guy, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Why does Jesus go there? All right, so all that stuff that Jesus said, these things right here, these are some of the famous 10 commandments. You've heard of the 10 commandments, right? So why does Jesus talk about just some of the 10 commandments, right? There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. Why zoom it down to the 10? And out of the 10, why go to these five, right? Why, why did Jesus go here? I mean, in other places, when Jesus has asked the question, what's the most important of all the commands? He gives the answer, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus doesn't go there. Why doesn't he go to the big one? Why doesn't he go to the first commandment that, that, that says, uh, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Why doesn't he go to that one? Well, I think what Jesus is doing is pretty genius. See, what happens is you can say that you worship God and you worship God alone. Anyone can say that they love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And who can check it? You can say that all you want. No one can go and look inside of you to see what's going on, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's verifiable in these commandments. <laughs> Jesus says, do not murder. And don't forget in Matthew, Jesus did say that if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder, so. He says, do not commit adultery. And, of course, Jesus did say in Matthew that if you look at someone with lust in your eyes, you, it says, if you've committed adultery. What about do not steal? And you're like, I've never stolen from my employer, but you have gone to Five Guys and realized they charge $17,000 for a drink, so you order water, and then you use the fancy machine to get a pop. That's stealing. (laughs) Some of you, literally, this is what I just saw, but you went, hmm? Like, you guys are terrible thieves, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, and guess what? He says, don't lie. So don't lie to me right now. I know you steal the pop. And then the doozy, honor your parents. We've all done that perfectly well, right? So this guy, Jesus lays all this out at him. And what does the guy say? He said, check, right? He says, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Nailed it, Right? <laughs> Now, here's the thing. Even though there's no shot, it's possible that he thought he did. I mean, honestly, most of us, this is Americans especially, we consider ourselves above average in nearly every single category. We're above average looking. We're above average driving. We're above average in our political view. Right? So he's probably like, you know, compared to most people, I got this. 
So how does Jesus, the good teacher, the God incarnate, handle this guy who thinks so darn highly of himself? Is he annoyed? Is he irritated? Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. It's extraordinary. Jesus looks at him and he loved him. And the Greeks have a lot of words for love. We tend to boil it down to one and that confuses the whole matter. There's a great book, by the way, uh, called, from C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. You should read that book. It's really short. It's, it's amazing. But this one love that Jesus had for this man is what's called agape love. That's the word in Greek. And what that love is, is it's a warm affection. It's a love that moves you toward someone. Jesus loved him, and he moved toward him, and he gave him the answer. The guy had said, like, what one thing do I have to do? And Jesus says, since you nailed the rest of them, <laughs> I just got one for you. Now imagine you're him. You got this Tetris piece the size of eternity inside of you. You're just searching for life. And then Jesus tells you, there's just one thing left to do. I mean, if the stakes are high enough, I could do anything. I could root for the Wolverines if it was the only thing left. We're talking about eternal life, complete and utter fulfillment. No more guessing, no more trying things, no more looking for significance inside yourself or in relationships with others. Just one thing left. He's got to lean in, right? And Jesus says, looking at him, Jesus loved him. And said, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he has had many positions. Possessions. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I have two observations about that. The first is, there are truly a lot of poor people in our community, but even the poor people in our community are wealthy compared to the rest of the world and the rest of history. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. Most of us, are not worried about where our next meal is coming from, whether we're gonna have clean water to drink today. We're wealthy. How difficult, Jesus says, it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Second observation, and I'm, I'm gonna admit this one will sting a little bit. The quicker you are to try to justify why this doesn't apply to you, the more it might the tighter your fist is around your possessions, your money, your wealth, the more your fist is tight around the things you have instead of helping to care for the needs in our community, in our world, the more the thing you may lack in your world might be the same thing as this guy. All right, there we have it. I think Jesus pretty much has got all of us, right? In these two passages, can we safely say Jesus has pretty much offended us all? 
right? He has found the squishy spot with every single one of us. So let's recap. Jesus has the right to tell you what to do with your sexuality, with your sexual and gender identity, your, your, how you express that, your marriage, your divorce, your money, your things. Jesus has the right to tell you what to do with your whole life. So what do we do when we encounter stuff like this? Well, sandwiched in between these two very difficult teachings was another one I skipped. You heard it read earlier. And you may have wondered why I haven't taught on that yet. <laughs> Let's listen again to these words of Jesus. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And after taking them into his arms, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Now, I have to confess, I've read this so many times. I've heard this taught so many times. But it wasn't until in the context of teaching through the Mark Mark that I ever saw it sandwiched between these other two incredibly difficult teachings. And I can't stop thinking about it. What does it mean when Jesus says to receive, receive the kingdom of God like a little kid? And, and see, the tricky part is, just like all metaphors, this one's not perfect. By the way, don't overplay a metaphor. If someone uses a metaphor, including Jesus, don't overplay it. And people do that all the time. They try to say things that it's not. Um, the problem is Jesus doesn't really tell us. He doesn't tell us what it means to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. And so we have to wrestle with what that means. And so those are all my caveats because I'm going to tell you what I think <laughs> as I've wrestled through this. I want you to think about kids right now for a second. We've got a lot of them in our church. You should be serving in our kids' ministry. That's a little plug there because they need to hear the gospel and they're going to receive the kingdom of God faster than you anyway. You have to learn from them, okay? Um, think about kids for a second. Sometimes they're childish, right? And, and Jesus isn't saying be childish, Jesus is not saying the way you receive the kingdom of God is rolling around on the ground, insisting on your own way, having a temper tantrum and writing on your brother's face with a Sharpie, right? We know that that's childish. That's not what Jesus is is saying here. He says, receive it like a child, be childlike. What is a child like? They're completely and helplessly dependent. They need everything from those who take care of them. Those of you who know me, you know I love kids. I like to say hi to the kids more than I like saying hi to you, no offense. They're more interesting. And a lot of times I'll go up to give a kid five and they'll run behind their parents or guardian's leg to hide because of stranger danger, right? What are they acknowledging in that moment? a childlike dependence and helplessness and this belief that they're going to be protected behind the leg of this person who is standing there with them. 
To be childlike is to recognize that we are helplessly dependent. That God does not need us, but we need him. That he gives us life and breath and everything. That he sustains our life. That he protects us. That he knows what's best for us even if we don't see what he's saying. We, we, we can run behind him and we can hide and protect him. As the psalmist says, we can protect ourselves in the shelter of his wings. Where this psalmist gives this beautiful image of, of God like a hen covering her wings, right? But that's not the only thing about kids. I remember hearing somebody say, well, it's, a, it's always stuck with me. Man, I hit home. He, he, he said that children expect you to love them. They expect everyone is going to find them very, very interesting. Is that not true? They expect that everyone is going to find, place them at the center of attention because that's where they belong. Some of you have deep-seated wounds in your life because when you were a kid expecting to be loved and to be the center of attention, you were ignored or you were dismissed or you were told that you were annoying and so you stopped running to the one who could have provided for your needs. And now you find it hard to believe that anyone, including God, could give you the life that you so long for so you search for it inside of you or in relationships with other people instead of him. I want to take these two ideas of childlikeness and put them together. If you have too high a view of yourself, you are not childlike because you're not dependent. If you have too low a view of yourself, you're not childlike because you don't see your value. A child has this kind of crazy, messy perfect mix where they're helpless and yet they'll throw out their arms and expect you to save them and expect you to love them. So when you come to Jesus with childlike faith, you come searching for life and here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna look at you. He's gonna love you. With agape love, warm affection, He's going to step toward you, and then he's going to say some hard things to you. <laughs> some of it you might find offensive, but that offensiveness often comes from our hardness of hearts, where we are more childish than childlike, where we want to be the one in control. We don't want to listen to the one that knows. So, so this is my encouragement to you, no matter where you land on any one of the myriad of offensive things that Jesus said today, let him love you. Let him soften your heart. Because here's the deal. Jesus has already taken your hard heart to the cross with him. When Jesus was crucified, which we're going to celebrate on Easter here in a couple, couple weeks, he became all the sin of all the world, including your heart's hardness. And Jesus has already dealt with it. So he is the safe place to run to. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to love you. He's going to step towards you. He's going to accept you. And then he's going to ask you to follow him 
which is gonna mean loving what he loves, accepting what he accepts, accepting what he says is true even when you don't like it. Charles Spurgeon, famous old British preacher, I love what he said about this. He was teaching this passage and he said this. He said, children receive the gospel without proposing amendments to it. He takes it from the word of God and just as he sees it there, it is to him a matter of undoubted fact. (laughs) That's what it's like to have childlike faith. So here's uh, what I want to do right now is I just want to take a minute to, to pray for you. And I'm not sure how this teaching landed. Uh, like I said, I, I know that a lot of Jesus' words are offensive. And we just need to admit that. And then look at it with face value and wrestle with our hearts. And so I want to encourage you to take a minute and do that right now. I'm going to give you a a minute or so of silence to just reflect and just tell God what you're thinking around your, any issue going on in your life, be it your money, be it your marriage, be it your lack of a marriage, be it just whatever, take it. And, and, And God is a big boy, he can handle it. And ask Jesus to show you his love, to move towards you in warm affection and just sit with that for a few minutes. And then I'm gonna close us in prayer right after that. Would you take a minute and pray? Heavenly Father, we just pray that we would be a people that come to you in in childlike faith. Uh, We admit that so often we we come with a hardness to our hearts, and we just pray that you would soften that up. I want to pray right now for people in this room who are struggling in difficult marriages. Maybe it's on the brink right now. We just pray that you would soften and tenderize our hearts. I want to pray for some of us who are single and we haven't wanted to be single. And we just long to have that person that we could have oneness with for the rest of our life. I just pray for us that you would help us to to see that when you created us and put longings in our heart that you did that for a purpose. Help us not be angry with you during this season. 
for those of us who've got our arms wrapped around our money and our things. We just pray that you would loosen up our hold. Like the rich young man who just couldn't do it. It's just one thing. But he just walked away sad because there's just no way. We just pray that you'd make us the most radically generous people on the planet. Tenderize our hearts, God. Help us to know that Jesus loves us and he moves toward us in warm affection. Help us to hide in the shelter of your wings behind your leg and to trust you. Help us to come to you with childlike helplessness and an expectation that you're gonna love us because you're going to. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.